With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. presents Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Lutmers. This is Revolution with High C. Thank you very much for joining us today. And I am joined to start out the show as we normally do for our roundtable discussion by my co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Hello. John Caracella. Good good morning. And Deb Caracella. Morning. And the topic that we're going to be discussing today is fear and fearlessness and whether those can coexist and how we can see fear and fearlessness coexisting together. And for me, this was prompted by a blog post by Gil Fransdahl, who had a little uh, post, and I think that this is a little portion that comes from a book of his called The Issue at Hand. Uh, I would encourage you, if you just do a quick Google search for fearlessness can coexist with fear, you'll find this post very easily. And it struck me because I think at this particular period from a couple of different uh, perspectives, you know, one, when I think about what's happening astrologically right now, this first half of the year is very challenging. And I think there is a lot of fear that people are either having or are starting to develop because there is a lot of things that are making us feel as if no matter what we do to move forward, we're being pushed back and pushed back against even further. So one step forward, three steps back. We see it from the people who are in power and fear because they keep pushing back and trying to do things to hold on to what they have without giving any sort of an inch for people to be able to breathe and just put more and more on the backs of the other people. You see that fear in those people that it's being put on because they start to not only fear what's happening and how are they going to get through this, but also they start to develop fear around the other. We see lots of fear being fomented towards anything that is different or other and being used as the excuse or used as the projection for what we should be afraid of rather than being willing to look at how to actually work on the the real issues at hand. 
And I think another way that we can see this, and to me, this is where we really see an example of what it looks like when fear and fearlessness coexist, because we may think that if you have one, you can't have the other. Whereas in this blog post, he's really speaking of one doesn't have to override the other. Just because we are fearless doesn't mean we don't have fear. Fearlessness just means we're willing to sit with and push through the fear and maybe use the fear to motivate rather than to let the fear be our defining characteristic so that we don't do anything or we give up in the face of it. And for me, I think we see that with a lot of these revolutions and things that are going on. Because if I look to the Ukraine or to Venezuela um, or to other places that have been going on longer, like Turkey and Egypt and Syria and all sorts of places, I think that we see fear and fearlessness coexisting. Because the people who are out protesting against the government are certainly um, doing so from a place of fear. They have a fear for their lives in terms of how the government might react. And they have a fear of allowing things to continue as it is, which means it's never going to get better and their lives are just going to get more difficult. But there's a fearlessness because they're willing to then stand out there and stay in those squares for months, whether it's cold, whether the military is sent in. Regardless, they continue to stay there and stand up for what they believe and stand up to the government. So for me, that's a perfect example of fear and fearlessness coexisting. Because while the people have the fear, the fear is actually the motivating factor that says either it can't get any worse or this is the right thing to do. And then the fearlessness says, regardless of the danger that this may put me in, that I'm truly afraid of, meaning being shot or whatever, the fearlessness says I'm going to continue to stay out there and not give up. And maybe that's one of the ways that we could think about fear and fearlessness coexisting is we may be afraid, but if we don't give up and we continue to move forward or push through, that shows fearlessness coexisting with fear, not because fear went away, but because both of those things feed each other. So the questions uh, around this, there's a couple of questions I would like to pose, um, and I'll pose them to my co-hosts, and then I would also encourage anyone listening to think about how they might respond to these questions as well. Um, the first question I would like you to consider and offer your insights on is, what does it mean to you if you hear the the phrase, giving the gift of fearlessness? And just as a, a prelude to that, this is talked about um, in this blog post, and Kil Fransdol is coming from a Buddhist perspective. And even though fearlessness is not the absence of fear, he says that oftentimes being able to calm the greater fears of those around us, or being seen as someone who was able to sit with and push through the fear and still do something, just like we might look at somebody in one of these revolutions, that they're giving this gift of fearlessness to others, which becomes a source of inspiration, or a source of hope, or a source of it can be done. So when I ask that question, what does that mean to you when you hear that term or that phrase, giving the gift of fearlessness? Well, hi, see, for me, I loved your prelude to this topic area. When I was Thinking about fearlessness, I had five things come to me on a personal level in terms of what is the gift of fearlessness. The first one is a sense of freedom. 
The second one is in the area or context of building confidence in myself. The third one came in as feeling really centered and solid, right to the core. And the fourth one was a sense of strength. And the fifth, and this would probably be the most practical one, is a gift of fearlessness would be identifying and navigating through a path. So, for example, if I was feeling fear as an emotion and I made the choice to be fearless, then there would be steps in that. I would have to harness myself on many levels to move forward. But once I've done it, I could take that template and apply it to other situations where I felt that fear to help me become more fearless. And I would, I dare to say, because life works like this, that the more you do it, the more it becomes natural to you. So it may, might feel awkward at first, but then you start to become friends with your fear and friends with the fearlessness. Yeah, Mildred, and those are great, um, sort of the, the, that list of five are great centering points for thought. Um, the, the idea of sitting with your fear is, I think, essential. One of the things that I've come to understand is that fear is, can be one of two things. It can be a teacher or it can be an addiction. And obviously, if you let the fear become the thing that, that controls you, then it's, you sort of like keep coming back to it and uh, soaking in it, then it's an addiction. And it, it, can't, really be, it can't really be helpful to you anymore. Uh, but fear is there for a reason. I mean, it's, it's programmed into our biology for a reason. And it's really designed to get your attention. So that's why sitting with the fear is so extraordinarily valuable. Now, giving the gift of fearlessness to me is really embodied in the word encouragement. And that is, that is to, to give courage and courage is uh, from the heart. It's from the French word cour, which means heart. So, you know, anytime it, to give the gift of fearlessness to someone is to encourage them and the way, you know, for me, the easiest way to encourage someone is to sit with them in their fear and let them share their fear with you, or with me. And then if, if, it is a, if it's my path, too, to go with them to be an, a companion on their journey as they approach their fear. Because I think solidarity with someone else when you're facing a challenge or when you're facing a fear when you're facing down a fear solidarity with someone else is a huge gift and it does to me uh it, it says a lot about um has a big effect on dissolving fear for me there was a lot to think about there between mildred and and john's responses um but as heisey mentioned um in his prelude to this discussion, the simple fact that there are individuals that we can see who stand up in the face of, of, you know, difficult situations and life threatening situations. And yet they choose to do so. Uh, And it's not because they're not afraid. Um, They are afraid, but the, 
need to do so, to take that stand, is more powerful than the need to hide or to play play it safe. And I think being aware that there are people who make those choices and and, and take that stand is a way of understanding that everyone has within themselves the ability to make that choice in in some area or in some way. It doesn't necessarily have to be as monumental as being willing to stand in front of, um, you know, armed militia. But even on much smaller personal levels, the ability to find the strength within yourself to stand for what you believe is the necessary thing right now um, exists for everyone. And if if we say that fear and fearlessness can coexist with each other, how do you think that can happen? How do you, what understanding might you have around how those two can coexist? And if you have a, a personal example that you can offer, uh, then I would encourage you to also perhaps share that as a way of illustrating what fear and fearlessness coexisting side by side with each other might mean. It, when when Deb was talking, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the revolutionary in some country standing up to the government. Uh, it could be the person who is facing their own mortality because they have cancer and yet not giving into the fear and giving up because if fearlessness means fearlessness can coexist with fear, fearlessness does not mean the absence of fear, then I would say, like as a personal example, for example, um, you know, someone with cancer. So if I look at my mother who had breast cancer like five times, I think, or something over the course of 12 years, you know, some people would give up. But instead it was like, yes, there is the fear of when you hear that or are dealing with that, but then there's the fearlessness, which says that I'm going to get on with my life anyway. You know, I go and I do the treatments, but then I still go and I travel to the Middle East or I travel to Ireland or whatever, which is what she and her husband did. So to me, that's an example of fear and fearlessness coex- uh, coexisting, that it's not because there is the absence of fear. It's just saying I'm not going to let fear control and rule, and therefore I'm going to work with the fear rather than give in and give up as a result of the fear. So how would you describe your understanding of fear and fearlessness coexisting with each other side by side? And if you have an example to share to illustrate that, what might that be? Well, um, actually, a number of years ago, many years ago, um, the my children were still in elementary school. So it was quite a while ago. I had a point in my life where, and I don't know what the trigger was, I have no idea where this came from, but I started to have panic attacks. And they weren't panic attacks in the, in the traditional sense of, of, you know, feeling like you're having a heart attack or having difficulty breathing, or, but, but there was panic, there was fear, and it was a fear that I, I could not, had no name. I didn't understand what it was. But my body 
was definitely reacting to it on a very physical level. And it wasn't something that was easily discussed or shared with others. And as it, the, the attacks or these, this event progressed, it became more and more difficult for me to leave my house, um, going to the kids' school and participating in a classroom event. Um, I, I became so fearful of the possibility of having an attack that it was the self-perpetuating, self-feeding, and it became, and it just encroached on all areas of my life. And I couldn't go to the grocery store, and so it really became um, very, uh, very uh, debilitating. And you know, I knew that there was no logical explanation for this. There was nothing that I could pinpoint to to say this is what's going on, this is what I'm afraid of. I had no idea what was happening, but there was true fear and there was a true physical reaction. And until it got to a point where at one day I just, and I would find, I was finding all kinds of ways and mechanisms to, to cope with it as best as I could, but I knew that this was not correct. And I knew that it was not how I intended to live the rest of my life. It was just not a possibility. And so I decided that one day I just sat down and um, my husband was there and I just basically unloaded this whole, I have no idea what's been going on with me. I think I'm losing my mind. I know, you know, this is what's been happening and I'm done. I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't take it and I will not live like this. Um, I didn't have the problem anymore. And I don't know what it was about the mental decision or if it was a sense of, you know, something coming into alignment within myself physically and spiritually. But I know that from that moment forward, the degree to which I had symptoms and episodes and problems almost miraculously changed overnight. And Moving forward from that point, I know that there were many, many moments when I needed to sit with the feelings of fear, with the feelings of something starting to happen, something's beginning to bubble, panic is starting to set in, step away from it, sit down and, you know, just take a moment and realize that you understand what's happening. Your body is reacting, but it doesn't have to take control. And you can be the person you want to be, and you can do what you want to do, even though this is happening. All you need to do is to understand it, acknowledge it, sit with it for a second, but not allow it to take control. And from that point forward, I have tried very hard to remember the, that sequence and to realize when something's going on and when I start to feel something physically in my body that's trying to tell me something or if my mental road, you know, my mental voice is going blah, 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 blah. I need to just sit, stop, notice it, acknowledge it and live with it, but not allow it to take over. So that's my fearlessness in the face of fear.
Wow, Deb, that was pretty profound. I think that what you've said is going to help a lot of people listening. I think everybody can relate to that in some way. That, And I think it took a tremendous amount of courage to share that. So I'm, I'm in awe of you. <laughs> well, thank um, you. You're welcome. Um, and I, and I do, I, and I understand that, you know, people face all kinds of things daily and Sometimes they get away from you and they can take over and you just, you don't have to allow them to, you can do the five things that you mentioned, you know, just find your strength, become centered, acknowledge it. Don't try to ignore it. Don't try to make it go away, but it doesn't have to take control. Yeah. Pema children. Uh, who hails, or not, doesn't hail perhaps, but has a facility in, I think, Cape Breton Island, right? Yes. Um, she has a book uh, called When Things Get Tough or Things Get Hard or something like that. Uh, and she talks a lot about getting comfortable with your fear, sitting with your fear, allowing your fear to really communicate. And that's what I mean. You know, when I say fear can be a teacher or it can be an addiction, if you allow it, and don't try to move away from it, but you allow it to pass through you, then you can learn what it has to share, and then you can move on. Because it, it, then you're like, oh, okay, that's, I get it. And now that I know, I don't need to have it so present anymore. And that's, I think, you know, as Deb was saying, you don't let it take control. You let it do its thing in, with your full attention and presence. And then it's not so, it's not such a monster anymore. As John and Deb were, were speaking, what I was feeling is an analogy of fear, feeling like hunger, that gnaw, deep gnawing feeling. Because when you're in fear, it's, it's, as Deb was saying, the body reacts. And what came to me was since fear it's like hunger in the context of a deep gnawing feeling. What do we do with hunger? Will we feed our hunger? That's the healing bomb that we would put on it. But our choice, which would be the fearlessness part, is do we feed the body with good food or junk food? So I would say with fear, do we choose to satiate that deep gnawing feeling with good thoughts or beliefs or junk thoughts and beliefs? And that's... That's where I'm at with it. Mm. Good point. Yeah. And I think that's a really good analogy. And um, it makes me think that, you know, because the author of the blog post that inspired this, Gil Fronstel, coming from a Buddhist perspective, um, you know, in the Buddhist path, you're always looking for the middle path. And so it's as if fear and fearlessness exist on two extreme sides. And their ability to coexist is by finding the middle path where you can both sit with, manage, and work with both of them. Um, so it's not that one has to override the other or disappear. It's just finding that place in the middle where one doesn't outdo the other. And John brought up Pema Chodron, and just today she had posted uh, on her Facebook page a quote that perfectly ties in with this that I think I will close this with as kind of a way to tie it up as uh, and a final thought for people to take with them. And it's from her book, When Things Fall Apart. And the quote says, fear 
is a natural reaction to moving closer to the truth. Yes. So if we're if we're looking for that middle point, then it says we're far over on one side in fear, and fearlessness represents kind of like the magnet or the thing that it can attract us or point us towards the truth and reality of the situation rather than the illusion we live in that fear tends to exacerbate and create and make blow out of proportion. And so if we can use fear and see it as a reaction, then if we start to look for the root of where the action is coming from, we move closer to the truth, which means we move closer to fearlessness. So I just wanted to close with that since John had brought that up. And I would encourage everyone listening just to think about what fear and fearlessness mean to you um, as individual states of being, but then how those two can actually find a way to coexist and work with each other and be with each other in that middle path rather than thinking we can't have one until we figure out a way to get rid of the other. So my thanks to my co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. My pleasure. And John Caracella. Great topic. And Deb Caracella. You're very welcome. For joining me here today, and I encourage you to stay tuned for the rest of the show, and we'll be right back. All my life, been running from a pain in me, a feeling I don't understand is holding me down. So rain on me, underwater, all I am, getting harder, a heavy weight, I carry around. Today, I don't have to fall apart, I don't have to be Shadows see through me cause Listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L I V E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with High C. Enjoy the show.
Listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L I V E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with High C. Enjoy the show. Hello, lovelies. It is I, your queerdo astrologer, Tio Kalenda, with yet another monthly installment of your astrology report for March. So kids, this one is going to be a bumpy ride, not unlike going through the Cooper Belt, a trans-Neptunian region of our solar system that can get mighty rocky. No pun intended. Collectively, we are still on the cosmic freeway on-ramp for the direct Uranus-Pluto square, which goes live April 12th. These are usually critical turning points and catalytic flashpoints. The last time these two boys went head-to-head was during the Great Depression, which signaled massive societal upheavals related to financial resources. Basically, the markets crashed, which was actually engineered by the central banks at the time and the still as extant Wall Street cartel. I suspect given that the last squares that were made in our times coincided with Occupy and the Arab Spring, we will again see similar movements emerge spontaneously and with quite flair. Fire seems to be the theme. We may see some more fiery uprisings and technology will feature a prominent conduit for these developments. I dare say we may see some new emerging technologies become recast as social liberators. The theme will be creativity and motion, as this is the Aries clarion call, and that is what Uranus, our techie wizard, is currently wearing this season. Much as Bronze Age technologies were used to make jewelry at the time of their emergence, before they were recast as weaponry, I'm saying that any new technologies we see emerge will be first used to liberate individuals of oppressive regimes before they will be used as methods for controlling the populace. Stay tuned. As for March, we can expect things to be shaping up to be a bit of a wild ride. 
I would liken it to a comet flying through a nebula at the moment a star is being born and firing up the fusion furnace that will fuel its life force while hovering damn near a singularity, which is just another way of saying a black hole, with a nice maraschino atomic cherry to top it all off. So let us now navigate this wild party, which is more loving than anything. Planetary Express. Mercury goes direct starting March 1st, 2014. I'm sure we've all felt the pinch of the last six weeks. Cell phones dropping calls, missed texts, impossible schedules, misunderstanding arising from an inability to state things clearly and garbled thoughts. Well, it all comes to an end on March 1st when Mercury will station at 18 degrees Aquarius and then go direct. And in the sign of the Vox Populi, no less. Very auspicious. It will mean anything in the realm of technology and communications will go much smoother, especially if you're trying to get a message to the masses. That said, the lesson of any retrograde period is to review and revise so you can move forward knowing you fairly negotiated all the terms. In essence, that you covered your ass. Live wire, Mars retrograde through Libra starting March 2nd and lasting until June 2nd. Passion of the other, your sweetie, if you have one, may be frisky over the next few months. Don't be surprised if they start picking fights over unresolved resentments just so they can have a hug that turns into fierce and passionate lovemaking. It tends to happen when Mars retrogrades and in the most diplomatic and partnership-oriented of the signs. My wise counsel is to defer to others over the next period. Otherwise, you may step on toes, and it could end very poorly for all involved. People may be a little testy or passionate more than usual, as a force of nature is going through a sign known for civility. It has the added bonus of making agreements much easier to reach, as people will be more active in coming to common ground. Mars is normally an aggressive and self-oriented guy, but in Libra, he becomes a real gentleman, cleans up nicely, puts on a coat and tails, and is prepared to come to the table with a well-thought-out strategy. Take advantage of this to come to terms with your beloveds and find workable arrangements. The buzzwords are review and re-strategize, and keep your anger in check or it gets out of hand and can really mess with your day. Atomic Lust. Saturn retrogrades into Scorpio starting March 3rd. Saturn can be a bit of a dour guy, but it largely is just because he feels the weight of responsibility he has to carry. He is, after all, the force of the laws of nature. Sometimes he gets down, but if you give him a hug and pinch his bum, he lights up like the North Star and can be quite a prince. He's currently going into his depths to reflect upon all the molecular lusts we share in our inextricable link to each other, which is what Scorpio is all about. Whether we are contemplating the way we are all connected, whether it be through the mechanics of viruses or the social arrangements we have to make civil society possible, it is a good time to restructure anything intimate, deep, and interlinked, whether it is the underlying structure of society or finding the courage to talk to your lover about all the sexy, dirty, and reptilian things you want to do with them when the clothes are off. It's all about what operating principles we use to be emotionally naked. This is prime time to figure out whether you can muster the courage to take that deep dive and explore new realities by showing your vulnerable edges. It is really about mastering the evolutionary process. 
and it takes surrender. Polyamory redux. Venus enters Aquarius, March 6th. I adore when the Lady of Love enters the sign of my event horizon, which is to say my rising sign. She's always playful and a bit slutty here, and around these parts we celebrate the sacred slut. No slut shaming allowed. Her mind always falls into the issues of the masses in this placement, so don't be surprised if you're wanting to connect with others in groups. You can read into that what you will. The lusty love nature of Venus will shine through all of our group associations this month. We will find it easy to work in teams and will want fewer one-on-one encounters as sometimes it is just more fun when a third tags along for the ride. Play, my lovely play, and don't be so damn serious. This is a lighthearted Venus with a feather stroke. And remember to play both naughty and nice with each other. But remember to play. Jupiter goes direct, also on March 6th. Jupiter is always an interesting case study. He's larger than life, will expand your horizon by sweeping you up in his optimism, and is full of fire and passion. He's a really nice guy. He gives you the milkshake that brings all the boys to the yard. Now, here's the thing. He has been retrograde these last few weeks and in opposition to brooding Pluto in the sign of his exaltation. So he's wearing Gucci loafers and a Prada slimline suit, and they have been throwing one hell of a rager for him. That said, he has been more pensive and reflective of late. If you've been drifting through your emotional depths and exploring the erotic darkness in the pregnant recesses of your imagination, he is probably why. He goes direct now so you can begin to integrate the new capacities found in the dark convexes of your mind and heart and forge ahead purified emotional nature and a much more rooted stance in your instincts, which is to say your programmed responses. You'll also have a better sense of where your boundaries are and how to hold them. Call it the gifts of Jupiter in one of the most of the in one of the most emotional signs. Downtown lights, sun trine Saturn starting March 14th. It's grand when these two hook up, and in trine it is a total cuddle session, followed by a roll in the hay. Saturn generally likes to be the little spoon and acts as a stained glass window that lets the sun radiate through it, refracting dazzling patterns of colors on everything it touches. The sun is in the most oceanic of signs, Pisces. This is the Melusine placement, the Melusine being an old French folk tale about a mermaid who comes on land and lives among humans. Sadly, it's also the image used for the Starbucks logo. Saturn is retrograde in Scorpio, which gives deep currents to the oceanic and galactic embrace of Pisces. If there was ever a time when imagination could manifest reality, this trine is it. Saturn's structuring powers using Scorpio's passion and drive takes the dreamy musings of Pisces and unites them with the tools, people, and circumstances to make ideas lived realities. If you have a project that involves others and a bit of whimsy, there will be no obstacles getting it to launch. Anarchist Space Cowboy. Sun conjunct Uranus starting March 31st. Uranus is the shock and power of the lightning bolt, and the sun is a sustained nuclear reaction that fuses lighter elements into heavier ones. 
When the two unite into a white-hot union, things get thermonuclear, and in the sign Aries, which is all about ceaseless creativity and initiative, well, let's just say that's the force that creates worlds at our disposal. This is a time in which very eccentric and way out in left field ideas will have a chance of coming into fruition and is empowered at this time. If you have an identity structure around being iconoclastic, this is a time when it can be empowered to make radical real world changes. Whether it's the local corner of your personal universe or a world changing innovation, this is the time of firing on all cylinders and letting the freak flag fly. The only disclaimer I would offer is this. Make sure that your spontaneity does not cloud your judgment to such an extent that you forget to properly think out your strategy. This is essential as a false start can be painful because you land right on your face. With this in mind, while it may seem there is no method to your madness, there is in fact, and it is genius. March is going to be a tumble down the wormhole at superluminal speeds. A seatbelt will only tighten down and cause whiplash. The theme is surrender. The best thing to do with these turbulent times is to ride the tide with the universe at your side. And that, my lovelies, wraps up another edition of our Astrology Report. If you'd like to consult with me, please feel free to shoot me an email at kalenda.tino at gmail.com. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-A dot T-I-N-O at gmail.com. For further musings, please be, feel free to check out my blog at flyingpunkrockunicorn.wordpress.com. That again is flyingpunkrockunicorn.wordpress.com. See you next month, lovely. My thanks to Tino Kalenda once again for his insights regarding our astrology update for the month of March. We'll look forward to seeing what he has to offer us in the next month as things promise to be a bit more bumpy even still moving into April. And the insight and the guidance here is always helpful in order to best navigate through it. So our thanks to Tino Kalenda. Stay tuned. Coming up is my conversation with ordained Buddhist Manida, and she is going to continue our conversation around the topic of fear and fearlessness from a Buddhist perspective. And so I encourage you to stay tuned, grab some tea, sit back, relax, enjoy. And we'll be right back.
at Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Today is Manida, an ordained Buddhist with the Triratna Buddhist Order. Manida works in the healthcare field, practices Reiki, and teaches courses on meditation and Buddhism. She joins us today to continue our conversation on fear and fearlessness coexisting. So please help me in welcoming revolutionary guest Manida. So welcome to the show, Manida, and thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to be able to talk with you. Um, maybe right here at the beginning, you can just allow us to hear the proper way to say your name. It's Manida. And you were recently ordained with that name, and maybe you can explain to us the origin of it or what it is that it means, why that name was bestowed upon you. Sure. Manada means holder of the jewel, and it was the name my private preceptor, Viveka, gave to me when I was ordained in the Chiratna Buddhist order in July of 2013. And so it signifies the bodhicitta, this wish and aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all beings. And so Viveka gave me that name not only as what she saw as potential in me, but also to something for me to aspire to in this lifetime. And I've asked you to join us here on the show today because I wanted to continue the theme and the conversation that we heard in the roundtable earlier in the show, which is the idea of fear and fearlessness and how those two things can actually coexist and what those things mean. So um, perhaps from your experience and from your study in Buddhism, uh, could you give us an idea of what you feel fear is, where fear arises from, and how you would define fear? I would define fear. It's a very interesting topic for me, and one I've been really interested 
for quite a while. Fear to me is whether it's thoughts, emotions, bodily sensations that result in this feeling of unpleasant discomfort and oftentimes our response to fear is to avoid, to back away or to run away. And yet that avoidance behavior is what perpetuates and reinforces the fear and those responses. So the key for me to being with fear is to move towards it. And I really liked what Gil Fronsdale talked about sitting with and pushing through fear, using it to motivate versus not doing anything or giving up. And it's actually what the Buddha did to overcome fear. He has been said to say uh, in the suttas to describe how he overcame fear by if fear overcame him when he was sitting, he just continued to sit. If fear arose when he was lying down, he continued to lie down. If it arose when he was standing up, he just continued to stand. So he just continued to do whatever he was doing and really sitting with that, being with it versus avoiding and trying to make it go away. Um, I've, I've, I've seen like an acronym for fear, which is false evidence appearing real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to me, that seems to speak to that there there is a very real aspect to fear. I think that fear can be represented in the fight or flight uh, way of, of responding to something. And sometimes that is very necessary because that's a way that we instinctually can protect ourselves when there is a danger to us. But for me, when, when, when you see like false evidence appearing real, it speaks more to that Buddhist idea of illusion mm. in that it, it means we have started to create this whole other thing around what was the origin of the fear and that it no longer has any basis in reality for something to be fearful of. And we've, we've taken fear to the extreme. So like when I was talking in the, the round table and I was saying that, you know, Buddhism looks for the middle path and that if fear and fearlessness reside on the extremes of that middle path, which from that quote from Pema Chodron, which mm-hmm. was about, uh, and just to paraphrase it very quickly, that the, the more fear that we are experiencing, the closer we are to truth, then that middle path is the truth. Fear and fearlessness can reside at the extreme opposites of that. And so, to me, we're at the extreme end of fear rather than the useful place of fear. Because, uh, not because, but when we are um, creating that illusion around it and making it something bigger mm. than what it is, that it becomes overwhelming and controlling us rather than something that we are able to sit with and then either work through or even utilize in a productive way. Right. So how would you recommend, one, for people to start to be able to identify when they are creating and perpetuating an illusion that is exacerbating fear to the point of extreme rather than usefulness? And then how would you suggest that they begin to bring that from the extreme place and down to that middle path so they are able to sit with it and work through it 
rather than to push it away or feel completely overwhelmed and consumed by it. Right. Good question. I think there is, like you say, a place for fear. And there are times where the fear is actually arising to to either protect us or to bring something to our attention that is vital for us to either see or understand. And then there are times where the fear, as you use that acronym, it can get overwhelming and can actually start to create more suffering for ourselves than um, than is really necessary. So what I like to, I guess, encourage for when fear is so overwhelming or it's very strong is to really come back to the body and the body is such a strong barometer for what's happening in our mental state as well and so when we experience those strong experiences of fear there's generally a lot of sensations going on in the body and so bringing awareness and mindfulness to that can be helpful and oftentimes if we relax or take deep breaths, just that subtle relaxation of the body can help the mind to open up, even if it's just briefly a gap or a space where we can then respond in a different way can be very helpful. And then on the other side, we would have fearlessness. Now, I think that we can also go to an extreme side for that as well, because I think the extreme side of fearlessness means someone who does everything without thinking, it's action without purpose or wisdom, action for the sake of action, and oftentimes it's action that ends up being destructive, whether to themselves or to others around them, because they just keep pushing through rather than ever, you know, slowing down and stopping. Um, but I think that's just an overcompensation for fear, actually, because it says I'm not going to stop long enough to allow fear to be felt, um, which shows us the importance of allowing things, sitting with things and feeling them rather than avoiding them. But how would you then define the other side? How would you define fearlessness? And what would you say fearlessness looks like or feels like? And how can we identify fearlessness even in the face of fear? Mm. Well, I define fearlessness as the capacity to be with whatever arises and even to the point where we can welcome whatever arises, no matter what it is. And it's not a state. I used to aspire to fearlessness and think it would be a state of being completely free of all fear and yet the more I practice the more I experience this spiritual path the more it's really becoming evident to me that it's not this permanent place a resting place but a way of living and that that really inspires me that it's a way of living and it's fear is going to arise as long as I'm alive I'm sure but it's how I respond to that and how I, yeah, my response to that, I guess, would be the best way to capture it. And am I moving towards it versus avoiding? So again, it's that moving toward, towards versus avoidant behavior. 
And I think there's a lot of people that have probably made fear their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Fear is their way of living. And that's how they define themselves. That's how they think that they need to experience life because they've just gotten so used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, how much you recommend to people to step back and be able to see whether they are living in fear and giving their power and life over to it versus being able to recognize it but to then start stepping away from it in order to not be so consumed by it and to come back more towards a place of fearlessness rather than always in that place of fear. Yeah, it's a really tricky one because when you're living in fear and it's so normal and just what you're accustomed to, it's hard to sometimes notice that because it's like the water you're swimming in. So it can be it can be tricky, but uh, I think I think that again, it's like in Buddhism, it's so important the awareness and just bringing that what's happening to each present each present moment. And so with with fearlessness, and or or someone who's just immersed in fear and maybe is having a hard time recognizing that that's just a part of how they're living. It's such a conditioned way um, and behavior. Again, it's awareness, I guess, and really um, becoming more and more. I guess sometimes you have to exhaust something. And and I liked what one of your guests uh, in the roundtable was talking about. Um, she said that she got to a point where she just couldn't take it anymore and said that she wasn't going to do this anymore. And so sometimes I think that process is just individual to each person that, you know, we live with fear, but at some point sometimes we reach the end of our ropes where we're just tired of living that way and we see the impact of, or we live the impact of living in fear. But oftentimes we unless we have something that's pulling us it's so easy to just continue to living in what we know and so having experiences of having experiences of being free of fear is very important as well because it's that glimpse that we sometimes can have that then pulls us forward shows us a different way and that can really motivate us and uh, was my experience in terms of how I realized I was living in, in fear and having an experience of really uh, being free of that and having that glimpse to know there is a different way and a different possibility of living. And so the, the theme that seems to come up that, that you've indicated is really helpful is awareness. So how would you suggest that people can cultivate awareness? Well, a common way is through meditation practice and learning about meditation. So that that's one way. But I often feel like awareness is not just what we cultivate on the cushion in formal meditation practice, but we can always bring that awareness to daily life and activities that we're doing and just really beginning to notice and pay attention. Uh, and that that's one of the first steps I think we can take. And you, you said that you think one of the important things is for someone to um, 
have the experience of not being in fear. Mm. And so if if someone feels as if they are always fearful or they have created this story or this illusion for themselves that they can't not be in fear because of whatever is going on in their life, which usually means they've really created a lot of story and illusion around everyone and everything in their life. Sometimes there's a legitimate reason for fear, but usually then we create everything to, to sustain that fear. How would you suggest that someone experience not being in fear when they feel as if they're either so used to living in fear that they wouldn't know what that feels like, or they don't know how to step out of or away from their fear even for a moment to see what the other experience is like. So this may sound kind of, you know, self-helpy, but have you heard of the book Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffries? I have not. So that is one suggestion of a way to actually start. I I don't tend to read a lot of self-help books, but I found this book really instrumental in my own journey with fear. And so if someone is interested in experiencing a different way, even if it's a moment of being without fear or overcoming a fear that they previously felt gripped by, I think this book is a really great way to begin to learn some of the principles about fear and how we can actually start to work to overcome that and face them. And not that you know we're trying to get rid of it or that it'll never come up again, but really to have those moments where we can build confidence and experience uh, progress and Uh, changes in ourselves based on some of what she writes in her book and so I think that that's also uh, can be helpful as well as as well as you know it was interesting the guest that you had in your roundtable was talking about what the gift of fearlessness means to them and I was really struck by what she said about uh, we can for, for her it meant being inspired by others and so I think that that can also help if we're around people that inspire us and we see that it's possible or they give us hope, I think is what she said. And so so being around people like that or orienting the mind in that direction can also be a way of experiencing and and trying to cultivate that in our own lives and being more aware of it. You know, all of these things are helping to foster greater awareness whatever we ponder becomes the direction of our mind and so if we're really interested in having a different experience of fear or having experiences that are different than what we're habitually used to um, all of these things can really help and um, I often also think just seeking you know, help if it's really uh, strong and very entrenched, it can also be helpful to see like a cognitive behavioral therapist who can really, through different means, uh, help to really bring that freedom. And and then that, even if it starts with a little uh, experience of that, it can build and gain momentum. So 
And I think what you were talking about, I kind of, sometimes I think it's like a pandemic in our society at this point, that people tend to begin to collect and surround themselves with people and things that simply reinforce their way of thinking or mirror their way of perceiving the world or experiencing the world. So if somebody is in fear, they will start to surround themselves with people and places and situations that simply support the continuation and perpetuation of that illusion Mm. rather than something that challenges them with a different view. So like when you're talking about having somebody that's inspiring, that often means we have to find someone or something to look to that is very different in their approach or their worldview than how we are. But Mm. it seems people more and more these days only look at, listen to, and surround themselves with things that mimic their own way of thinking, um, which does nothing but uh, it's kind of like blowing up a balloon. It like it just feel, it fills with more helium, the illusion balloon, you know, for them to to be surrounded by and to inhabit. So I know that, and you you just mentioned this. Um, one of the very important ideas, tenets in Buddhism is what is called the gift of fearlessness. And so to go back to the question that was part of our roundtable discussion. What do you understand the gift of fearlessness to mean or to be? And, you know, how would you suggest that we bring ourselves to be able to offer it? And then what do you think the benefit of the gift of fearlessness is? Yes. The gift of fearlessness for me is really about exemplification. So it's what we can offer to others through our presence through inspiring others when we have confidence and have been able to face fears and not again not to make it go away or to respond from a place of aversion because fear will arise it's really embracing whatever arises and that includes fear and so the gift of fearlessness which is one of the highest gifts we can give in Buddhism, it's only second to the gift of the Dharma or the teachings, is is very inspiring when we can see that exemplified by someone else and someone else uh, modeling that for us. I think it also, for me, has a practical component too. And so all of these like books like Susan Jeffers, um, different people who really help people to overcome fears through cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, people who help through meditation. So there's a a practical way this gift of fearlessness can manifest in the world as well. It it doesn't have to be this esoteric thing out there or being um, inspired by others. And then I think also archetypes to me play a really important role in the gift of fearlessness. So in Buddhism, we have archetypal realms, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, who embody fearlessness. And so those archetypes tap into a non-conceptual way we can uh, relate to fearlessness. And so that can also be a gift. And finally, I think the gift of fearlessness to me 
really means that we just keep going. And even if, even if it, it, it feels like insurmountable at times or, you know, we may get demoralized at times, it, it's really that we can keep going. And we see that in other people who have been able to do that. And, and that is a true gift to be able to do that. And I think the value, your question was what's the value of that uh, in this world. I think it's particularly a gift because human beings in general tend to be driven by fear. We tend to live in a world that's so fear-based. And so when we have those pockets of fearlessness that we can either experience or see or feel like someone else is embodying that, that's truly a gift to be able to experience that. And what would be um, an example of the gift of fearlessness in the more everyday realm? Because for me, when you were saying that, I was thinking that it could be something as simple as seeing someone who is upset and going over and holding their hand Mm -hmm. or sitting down next to them on the park bench and just sitting with them even if it's just to indicate to them in a very nonverbal way, you know, I acknowledge and see you in your pain and suffering, and you're not alone mm-hmm. in this moment of your pain and suffering. And you mean that's a very momentary gift of fearlessness, but it may have a huge and long-lasting impact for what that gift has been able to offer. Uh, and so, you know, to get away, not to get away from, because it's important for the bigger, you know, more conceptual aspects of what the gift of fearlessness is and all of that to also be contemplated. Um, but it's, I, I think, just as important for people to not think it's too much for them to grasp or understand, but to see that it's something that either they can do or can be done for them or that they can ask for, which I think sometimes is also important to be willing to ask someone to give them the opportunity to give that gift. It doesn't always have to be something that's bestowed without us ever asking, you know. It doesn't just fall out of the sky. Um, because that's putting a lot of pressure on somebody else. I, I expect everybody else to read my mind or to always see when I'm upset or in need of something and they should be able to provide it just by knowing rather than me having to ask. So to bring it down to that level, what would be an example or two either from your life or just in general of the gift of fearlessness on the everyday level to help make concrete that conceptual idea around the gift of fearlessness? Mm. Well, I think you bring up a really good point about how we experience this just in every everyday life, which is for the majority of us how how we experience, how we live. And and it's, it, it's I think for me personally, it's been where I've either been going through a difficult time or fearful about something and having friends really be there to listen to like you said hold your hand along the way supporting you and that has been really important an important part of my life and and the relationships that I have with my friends and not only receiving that but giving that as well in, in mutual like a mutual gift of exchange So that, yeah. And I I think that that brings us back to the theme you were talking about of awareness. 
because it indicates that we also need to cultivate our own awareness so that we see opportunity for offering that gift when it is needed. And, you know, it can be asked for, but it may not always be asked for. Someone may not feel comfortable or even know that they need to ask for it. But if we have that awareness within ourselves, it means we recognize when that gift is needed so that we can then offer it in the right time, in the right way, uh, rather than missing that opportunity. Um, but I also, it made me kind of realize when you were talking about it's important to experience not being in fear, that having that experience helps us with moving or sitting with and beyond fear, that when we are in the position of being able to offer the gift of fearlessness, we are stepping outside of ourselves at least for a moment, mm -hmm. which means we are stepping outside of whatever fear we may live in because we suddenly turn our attention away from ourselves to someone else and what they need in that moment. And that, so somebody could think back and say, when did I, you know, hold the hand of someone that was upset? When did I offer something to someone that was in pain that helped to ease that pain for a moment for them? Because that would then give them the opportunity to look back and say, what did that feel like? Which means I'm able to look back and say, what does the experience of not being in fear feel like? Because in that moment of holding the hand, of offering something to relieve the pain, that I was not ensconced in my fear Right. But instead, I had stepped outside of that in order to offer something to someone else. Yeah, that's a great point and one that, uh, yeah, has very, has a lot of Buddhist connotations there <laughs> of being uh, self-oriented versus other-oriented and how we can really experience that, that uh, fearlessness through letting go of this self-clinging and orienting towards others. That, that, that's a great point, that, that that is a very tangible way that we can experience the absence of fear, that expansiveness, that openness that results when we are oriented to other versus what's, you know, my problems or how do I, what do I get? And um, so, yeah, I like, I like, you just brought up there. Which I think really starts to point to ultimately fear is based in the ego mm -hmm. and is ego driven mm -hmm. because that's where we then come to letting go of the self. Right. Um, you know, and so when we can see beyond and move beyond our own ego, we actually will be able to start to relieve or no longer feel as if we are living in fear. Exactly. It is nothing to defend any longer if we really see the self as an illusion. And nothing to run away from. Yeah. You know, because for me, defend would be the fight aspect. And so with fight right. or flight, you know, there's nothing to defend, but there's also nothing to feel as if we need to run away from or deny versus we can just be with. We can just be. Exactly. We can just be. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and maybe that's, that's what the ultimate experience of not being in fear is, is when we have that sensation of just being. Mm. 
Yeah, I, it's interesting we're talking about this because I was just reading something by Adi Ashanti and he was talking about this aspect of this notion of just being and I think uh, it's very, yeah, it's a very important way of experiencing just this. I, I was going to say life, but it, it's not even life. It, it's it's just this. And in the present moment, it sounds trite, but that is what that is, what it is. And so really that being, that, that tapping into that stillness and that space, yeah, it is is the absence of of fear, absence of even you know, fearlessness as concepts. You know. And I think that well, I think people are very afraid of, and I think that we're very conditioned not to just be in our world, in our society, because there's always a sense of we need to be doing something. You know, what's the first question that people often ask when they see somebody that is in pain or difficulty or suffering or fear? Is there something I can do? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we're doing, we're not necessarily being. Right. And so it's the constant need to do or the, the thinking there is something to be done that perhaps exacerbates or perpetuates the fear when actually the stepping back and not doing and just being with the person while they're in fear or in pain. You know, it's like sitting with somebody while they cry rather than trying to do something to make them feel better. Mm-hmm. It's it's that being that often is much more important because doing can exacerbate or complicate the situation rather than actually help the situation. Yeah, it's really knowing when to be and when to act appropriately. And and, and of course, from the, go ahead. Was from from the Buddhist standpoint, of course. If we're always doing, if we're always in action, we're never taking the time for the reception of wisdom. And, you know, I always come back to the image of the bell and the dorja, that, you know, one without the other is always useless or pointless. Mm -hmm. And so if we're always in action, always trying to do something to fix the situation, to change the situation, to make somebody feel better, you know, whatever, then we're never stopping long enough to be in receptive mode to know what the wisdom is for the right action, which means inaction can also be inaction, <laughs> um, and therefore we're completely missing one half of the equation by mm-hmm. always being in action. Um, and so I wanted to also just pose to you the other question that was brought up uh, in the round table, which was when we talk about fear and fearlessness coexisting, um, what is that mean to you in terms of those two things coexisting and if you have any personal example of what that felt like or when you have experienced those two things sitting side by side in harmony (laughs) um, you know what that was what that felt like Mm. yeah fear and fearlessness coexisting at the same time for me is about being with whatever arises, fear arises, really being with that, again, without avoiding and 
so so it's it's both a simultaneously occurring at the same time. The fear is there, but again, under the light of awareness, we're responding by not avoiding running away, stepping back, which again only reinforces the be the behavior and so for me it, my personal experience with that was around overcoming my fear of insects which I've had for a really long time and really related to what your previous guest said about getting to the point where she couldn't take it any longer and I was on a solitary retreat uh, in the summer in the woods camping and with would meditate or would be sitting out there just enjoying the river and just could not, whenever an ant crawled on me or a bug flew by, I just had this fight, a fear response. And it was just so exhausting. I finally could only be in my tent all zipped up. That was the only bug-free place. And I left that retreat. I actually thought about leaving earlier, uh, ending the retreat earlier. I ended up staying, but was so mentally and emotionally exhausted by the end of that retreat that I realized I had to to look at this and really face this this fear and and so I worked with a cognitive behavioral therapist uh, who was amazing um, amazing man and it started with exposure so really exposing um, myself to insects first through pictures and then with um, video. And that, to me, was my first experience with the insects of being having fearlessness and fear coexisting because even looking at a picture of an insect would bring up fear and all the sensations and the tightness. And yet, being in a environment where I could stay with it and really keep looking at that image, just bringing that awareness, noticing what's happening, and then really seeing how over time I could be with more and more different pictures and then through video and then actually being exposed to the real insect. And that's, and so there's, there's both happening at the same time. And everything I've learned from, from Neil, my uh, the cognitive behavioral therapist I worked with, is that whenever we avoid, it just it gives the brain um, relief, and so it reinforces in the in the brain that that behavior of avoidance was good, and so then it takes higher and higher levels. Uh, when we avoid, then that behavior uh, just gets reinforced. So, for example, if I see a spider in the basement and run, the next time I might just get to the foot of the basement and the fear arises and then I, you know, run away from, I don't even go down the basement. My brain's getting this reinforcement at higher and higher levels of avoidance. So next time maybe I might have to wall off my basement to get the same relief in the brain. And then, like Neil says, before you know it, you're wearing a beer beekeeper's outfit with a feather duster in your hand. And so that's how it can get. Um, and so, so really, fearlessness and fear coexisting to me is about bringing that awareness and being with the fear, but moving, yeah, moving, leaning in. So it's, it's like we're not 
we're not running from it, we're not avoiding, which perpetuates it. Uh, and that, so that, that's kind of what it's been like for me with my experience in both of it coexisting. And I think that that points up an important part of the process because oftentimes what we hear is the phrase, I need to conquer my fear. And that makes it sound like, you know, we're going to enter into the boxing ring and knock this fear out and that'll be it. It's done, you know, boom. Whereas what you've just illustrated is it's it's a process yeah. and we have to be willing to enter into the process mm-hmm. and allow for the steps of understanding the fear, gently moving away from the extreme side of the fear rather than seeing it as something we need to cut out of ourselves or conquer and put away Mm. which the more we move away from that extreme side the more it opens up and pulls in the fearlessness so we start to become less fearful really Um, but I think that that's and again I think it's perpetuated in our society that you know just like in western medicine it's like oh you have this take this pill as if somehow we just conquer the dis-ease in one fell swoop rather than you know, I tend to be more herbally oriented and natural oriented and Eastern medicine approach oriented. And there, you know, like with an herb, for example, you take it over a course of time or on an ongoing basis and it will help, but it's helping at deeper levels. And we can take a pill to no longer feel sick within an hour, or we can take the herb and within maybe 48 hours, we start to feel much better, but it's doing something at a deeper level to make that a long-term sustainable thing. And, you know, Western medicine, people hear me say this all the time, Western medicine treats the symptom. So mm-hmm. conquering the fear is kind of like, I want to take a pill to overcome the fear and no longer feel it, which I think right. we see in a lot of therapeutic <laughs> settings, let us just say. That's the approach to, oh, you're afraid of this? Then here, take this. Yeah. Um, and so it numbs us to the fear, which is really another form of avoidance, rather mm-hmm. than helping us to truly work with the fear to come to a relationship with it. Um, and, and that, to me, is the coexisting, is the two mm. sit in relationship with each other rather than I need to have or be one or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so coming up, as soon as we finish our conversation, we're going to hear a poem that you have recently written that is very specifically kind of geared around this particular topic. Do you want to maybe just speak a little bit to where that poem came from and what that poem is about? Sure. I was in San Francisco in January, and I had intended it to be a two-week solitary retreat. Uh, I was house-sitting for a friend, and it ended up being a more loose, loose retreat where more more unstructured than I had actually intended. But through that experience, I was able to really move through a very difficult situation that I was facing at the time. And a lot, I think, I think in hindsight, it was really having that space and unstructured time where I didn't have to do anything and could really just be, again, this aspect of being, but really be with uh, what was arising, what was was happening for me at that moment, and had an experience of just really breaking through that, and um, not in the sense of, you know, like it going away, like you said, uh, but 
experiencing um, a freedom from it that was very powerful. And, and so this poem, I think it was a day or two later, this poem just kind of arose and it was really quite enjoyable, the process of just allowing the words to to arise. And it's been like a mantra for me. I, I say it every day and it's been really um, a guide, a guiding force for me in my life. We will look forward to hearing that momentarily. Um, to finish each conversation that I have, mm-hmm. um, there's two things. I first will ask you a question that a previous guest has asked without knowing who it would be asked to. And then I will ask you for a question to pose for a future guest without mm-hmm. knowing who that might be. I don't even know who that might be at this point. So, you know, it's just a question that you feel has arisen for you that you want to put out there for someone else. And in doing that, my belief is always that the right question comes for the right person. And so something about them hearing that question in that moment is what they needed to question or to think about or to have brought up within themselves in that moment. Mm-hmm. So the the question that I have for you comes from my guest Beverly Kane, um, who does somatic and Qigong work with horses, uh, equine learning and therapy, equine assisted learning and therapy. And her question was, what is your favorite animal and what is the favorite experience that you remember or had with that animal that makes it your favorite? Hmm. I would say my favorite animal is my dog, my brother's dog, Scrappy. And what makes him my favorite animal is his kind of quirky personality. And he like does this crazy thing where he like, chomp that air or he he's just really a quirky dog but so lovable just being able to have him uh, sit on my lap and jump up and in his face I just look at his face and it's this amazing beautiful face and and eyes and so I just have this bond with Scrappy and uh, funny story I I love dogs but I just uh my lifestyle doesn't support that. And so I asked my, my sister-in-law at one point, I said, hey, can I maybe house it or take Scrappy on weekends, you know, from, and that would be a, a good way for me to kind of have a dog. But um, my my niece, Gabrielle, didn't want to give Scrappy up even for a weekend. So I guess I'm going to have to get my own dog. <laughs> and then what question would you like to pose? for my future guest? Hmm. I guess I would ask what's coming up is what does the heart long for? What does the heart long for? The heart long for. All right. A very provocative question. (laughs) Um, Which, just as I was saying a moment ago, could easily change or be a different response at any given moment. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see what in that moment their heart longs for. 
Yeah, I'll look forward to hearing the answer. <laughs> so I want to thank you very much for being willing to do this and have this conversation. And mm-hmm. coming up, uh, we will be hearing your recitation of your poem. Do you want to just tell us the title and then... It's titled Song of Manida. So that will be coming up momentarily, and following that we will have our monthly Living Well segment with Linda Wiley. So I encourage you to continue listening, to just sit back, have a cup of tea, close your eyes, and take in the words of Manida's poem as it is recited, and see what arises for you upon hearing it, where it takes you, where it sits in your body. So to you, Manida, a thousand gratitudes for doing this. And stay tuned. Coming up next will be a song of Manida. titled Song of Manida, and it was written by me, Manida, in January of 2014. Dressed in flowing white garb, amidst the darkness, I stand tall with a straight back, head held high, and chest forward. My armament is now a golden bow, and arrows of pure white light, the light of the divine feminine. A golden lasso hangs from my right hip. I am powerful, fearless, and free. Abundance and unbounded love flows from my heart like warm rays from the sun, extending in all directions, sharing the bliss of union with all things. I am connected to everyone and everything. I throw my head back as peals of laughter erupt from this immense source of joy. It cannot be contained or denied any longer. I dance, sing, and create. I am the dance. I am the song. I am that masterpiece you're looking at. Life is my canvas. My brush is play. And infinite possibilities are my shades of paint. Anything is possible. I roar at the darkness with fearlessness, love, and compassion. It is the roar of freedom and liberation. Done is what had to be done. This is the end of suffering. By freeing myself, I now free others.
You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. 
He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact HiC at tarotbyhiC.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Your monthly guide to the well-being of your body, mind, and spirit. It's about an alternative approach to life, healing, and living well in our changing world. Let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. A return to this understanding of the truth of food and the value of food within our life. Our body is a machine for living. It is organized for that. It is its nature. Let life go on in it, unhindered, and let it defend itself. It will do more than if you paralyze it by encumbering it with remedies. Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace. To realize our connection with all of life and the plant and animal kingdom and how we support and help each other in our process. I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Welcome to this month's Living Well. I'm glad to have you with us. In today's chat, I want to connect some very important and imposing dots, things that, in truth, can no longer be denied and skipped over if we want to survive what is looming ahead for all of us. So understanding and walking in the truth of these words, community, permaculture, food sovereignty, and food safety, understanding how important food actually is and the need for the return to and of the sacred in our lives today is what we're going to be talking about. The tragedy of life is not death, but what we let die inside of ourselves while we live. This says so much about our world today. We need a new story, a new story of the people, one that connects us to the truth of life, real life, one that reconnects us to the sacred, the ancient wisdoms, ones that bring light and freedom to the soul and to all of life. For we are not alone here. It's all connected. We are deeply interdependent. All is one, for in fact everything and everything is life itself. Understanding this, that we are life itself, does much to change the perspective which which we see and live and view lives, ourselves, other, and world. When we destroy the earth, we destroy ourselves. And most do not even see this. Walking dead, asleep at the wheel, is anybody home here? The outer is the inner, and the inner is the outer. There is no escape from this fact. Have you noticed how this fabricated web of life never delivers Always left short, never feeling satisfied, hungry for something that tastes sweet and good. How wars will end, but never do. How financial freedom will come, but never does. How we will save the planet and its ecosystems, yet they continue to be destroyed and disappear on a daily basis. And so will we, if life is not taken up again in its truth. Thich Nhat Hanh says it this way, 
The next Buddha will most likely not be a person, but community. For this is the only way that we will survive what is coming. Taking back our self-responsibility and knowing that it is together or not at all puts us into a new perspective, a new story. How will we do this? How will we survive? Will we answer life's calling out to us ever more deeply as each day passes to awaken to the light of who and what we really are? And to the honoring of all that is sacred, for all of it is. This is from Robert Jensen with some of my words added in and connected. We cannot know what time this party will end, but the party is over. This much is clear. Apocalypse means the lifting of the veil, a disclosure of something hidden, a coming to clarity. We need to deepen our understanding of the crisis we face and not be afraid to see through the many illusions that powerful people and institutions create. By facing this within ourselves, we can deal with the structures that shape our lives, and we can then make a change. We must affirm the value of our work for justice and sustainability, even though there is no guarantee that we can change the disastrous course of contemporary society at the hands of the governments, the elites, and the corporations. But try we must hard as it is to bear, for when we do, we affirm life. We get back in touch with the sacred, which is our touchstone of life. As Baldwin puts it, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. So as we continue on connecting these dots, community and permaculture, food sovereignty, there was a article that was posted by Natural News, which you can all find online if you don't know about it already, naturalnews.com. And in it, Mike Adams, who is the owner and writer for this, he posted an article saying, the battle for humanity is nearly lost. Global food supply deliberately engineered to end life, not nourish it. He has a forensic lab And it analyzes many of the foods and what's in them, the heavy metals. And as the article progresses, he's he's done lots of studies, over a thousand analyzed foods, superfoods, vitamins, junk foods, popular vegetable, uh, popular beverages for heavy metals and other substances. And he says, based on what I'm seeing via atomic analysis, of all dietary substances that people are consuming on a daily basis, I must now announce that the battle for humanity is nearly lost because the food appears to be intentionally designed to end human life rather than nourish it. This is a deep statement and something that we really need to be concerned about. People can't comprehend anymore. They've been dumbed down, malnourished, and eating food that does nothing to honor the sacredness of life, to honor the light that we all have within us. In fact, it sucks all of that out from us. And he's saying that humanity cannot survive the mass engineering poisoning of our food supply. There's yoga mat chemicals put in foods in um, fast food restaurants. There's no logical reason why these chemicals should be added to the recipes. 
The chemical serves no necessary function of nutritive purpose. It exists solely for the purpose of delivering the chemical to hundreds of millions of consumers by blending it into popular fast food. We know most of us are aware of genetically modified foods, and what we have to know about genetically modified foods is that as they are genetically modified, they genetically modify our DNA as well. That means we are becoming something other than what we are, that the body is undergoing changes, and who knows what that can mean. Basically, right now, it's ill health for the whole world, for everybody that eats it, for the plants, for the animals. It's a horrible situation. It's time to wake up, folks. It's time to have a different look. Tremendous profits are made at the poisoning of you. And many of the things that we are treated for are created by the very companies that promote the food, like the chemicals that, were, that are in the bread, the cigarette companies that promote and make cigarettes are also the ones that create the centers for helping you get off of your um, cigarettes and disease management and the profits that they make. So what do we do about that? How do we see that how the Romans salted the fields of their enemies in order to conquer populations through the destruction of the local food supply? This is clearly still being done today via via GMOs and other toxic substances in our foods. Organic farming can vastly outproduce genetically modified agriculture. This has been proven over and over again, but you don't hear about it in the mainstream. They don't want you to know about it. They want you to be fearful and believe that GMOs will work. Even the World Health Organization, of all things, has come out and stated that organic agriculture is the way. GMOs are dangerous for humanity. Pharmaceuticals are killing more people than nearly all diseases today. Toxic metals in the food supply cause permanent brain damage to the population, dumbing down the people and destroying the very foundation of an intelligent society. Weapons of mass distraction are all our toys, as it were, that keep humanity ignorant of the reality of healing foods and nutritional fundamentals. It's all about the money, greed and not caring that they ruin your life as they lie to you. Remember, nothing is as it appears to be. It's time to see behind the veils that cloud our fabricated reality. Killing people slowly is hugely profitable and economically supports the modern sick care industry. As they say, follow the money once again. Betrayed at all levels in the chess game, we're losing our way. So how do we contribute to solving this problem? It is by voting with your wallet. Not much of any other action is required since it is all about the money. If we are blind, they win. If we see and take this action, they lose and we win. It's time, would you not say? Reward honest companies that produce and sell clean food and safe products. If you don't buy it, they can't make it. And it's as simple as that. And that's why we really need to be aware of this kind of thing. And how does it connect in with the permaculture and community? Because when we form communities, we're supporting each other 
more in truth. And people who are in communities and in the permaculture world see the world as we have just spoken of, and they're aware of it. And permaculture is the response to the toxicity and pollution of our biosphere and how can we regenerate the earth. So when we come together in community and we grow our own food and support each other in lifestyles that are conducive to honoring the sacred, to honoring the earth, to honoring each other, to honoring clean food, life changes. And this is what must happen if we are to as Thich Nhat Hanh said, survive what's coming, the next Buddha will be a community. So it's very important that we understand how important food, community, and the sacred are. It's all the same thing. And remember that as we're destroying the earth, we're also destroying ourselves. This is far beyond any single issue This is about how human civilization is being brought to its knees by the most insidious stealth weapon ever experienced in our collective history, processed foods laced with toxic substances. It's ever more important to buy local, seasonal, and organic because in doing so, we support everything that's good in life. When we buy shipped foods, they come from far away. Who knows what's happened to them? When we live in a certain area, we are to eat the food that grows in that area locally. That's why it grows here. We become in tune with our environment, with the nature around us. We become strong and grounded in the area in which we live. And it's more easy to connect with the community around us. But it's really important for us to start to see these things. There's not much time left. There's an urgency and an immediacy about this information. So tips, get healthy, exercise, eat right. There is no longer any excuse when we see what is happening in the world today with our food supply. Think right. Check out the research. Look into the truth of these issues and statements that the mainstream makes. Do not take the info from mainstream as truth because mostly it's not. Look for yourself. See what's up. Then share the information with others. Develop community locally. Grow your own food. Food is free. Remember, food is free. When we come together in our village mentality, which, by the way, we are hardwired for, We create a sustainable life. Eat with the seasons. No longer is ship food an option from faraway places because it supports all that we stand against. Support what is local and know that when when you do not eat locally, you are supporting the destruction of all of life. No games now. Walk your talk or lose our way further. Soon it will be spring and it is the time of the liver. So start eating those grains, drink raw juices, clean out the body and the mind, get in touch with the spirit, for it is the loss of all that is sacred that allows for the degradation to continue. Waking up is not really an option at this time, nor is it really fun, and it takes a lot of courage. But the info is all around us and it's time to see and take action in our local realities.
Here's some books that I'm suggesting in a few videos. The Darkening Light, The End of an Era by Llewellyn Von Lee. He's an incredible spiritual man who sees deeply about what's going on. The Elves of Lily Hill Farm, A Partnership with Nature by Penny Kelly. It's, it helped me to get off of my arrogance and high horse and see that there are perhaps other dimensions and realities to life. And she felt the same. And through her connection and communication with the elves and nature, her whole life changed around. It's a very beautiful story. Gaia's Garden by Toby Hemingway, an incredible permaculturist. And it's a beautiful look into how to create your garden, how to design a food forest, how to be sustainable. It's a really great book. Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnstone. Joanna Macy is an incredible spiritual activist who comes from a Buddhist tradition. Uh, She's very dynamic. It's It's a powerful book. Spiritual Ecology, The Cry of the Earth, edited by Llewellyn Von Lee, with many uh, famous, deeply spiritual people, Thich Nhat Hanh, Joanna Macy, Wendell Berry, Sandra Ingram, Brian Swim, Vedana Shiva, she's just awesome, and many others. It's a really lovely book. Then a cookbook, Nourishing Traditions, the cookbook that challenges politically correct nutrition and the diet dictators by Sally Fallon. She uses the Weston A. Price guidelines for health. And I recommend looking up Weston A. Price. He's a very deep looker into food and what's correct and how to eat locally and And then uh, finally, check out Paul Check, C-H-E-K, and study his YouTube videos called Nutrition, the Dirt Facts, Must Know Information. It is about the earth being ourselves and the, the dirt and growing food and how important that is and what happens in the transformation of our bodies from the dirt to the food, to ourselves, to the cells, to our health and well-being. It's it's a seven-part thing. They're not very long, 10 minutes each one. It's, it's really worth looking into. And then he did a, his blog on YouTube, which was a play or a, a deepening of the article that we looked up on Natural News, and it's called Battle for Humanity Nearly Lost. So head in the sand is death for all of us. We, we must pull ourselves up and out and take a deep, deep look at life. And so in closing, I'd like to share uh, this. It's from the book Spiritual Ecology, The Cry of the Earth. What matters is how through our own response we reconnect to what is sacred and we return to a sense of deep belonging here in this place of wonder we call Earth. 
There is action to be taken in the outer world, but it must be action that comes from a reconnection with the sacred. Otherwise, we will just be reconstellating the patterns that have created this imbalance in the first place. And there is work to be done within our hearts and souls, the foundational work of healing the soul of the world, of replenishing the spiritual sustenance of creation, of bringing the healing powers of divine love and remembrance where it is most needed. It all begins within. The crisis we face now is dire, but it is also an opportunity for humanity to reclaim its role as guardian of the planet to take responsibility for the wonder and mystery of this living, sacred world. A final prayer. Within all these different voices is one voice, one story. The story of the earth that needs our attention and prayers, that needs our love and support as much as it has always given us the love and support we need. May we remember our role as guardians of the earth, custodians of its sacred ways, and return once again to live in harmony with its natural rhythms and laws. And to remember that the prayer is for us as a people also, that we can create a new story, that we can live again in truth and freedom and honor each other. This is extremely important. I wish you all a blessed day. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's only a dream. 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 Thank you for joining me today for this segment of Living Well with Linda. I'm Linda Wiley. If you would like to chat further with questions, comments, or consultations, please contact me at linda at Thank you and blessings to all. Blessings to all. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist with Heisey Ludmers and Charlie Harrington, Tuesday evening at 8 p.m.
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.